Hello, I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode of Akbar's Chamber, we'll be discussing the man who was probably the most influential religious reformer in modern Muslim history, the Egyptian Muhammad Abdu. Born in provincial Egypt in 1849, Abdu went to study in Cairo, where he came under the influence of the anti-colonial activist Jamal al-Din al-Afghani. Forced into political exile after the British occupation of Egypt, Abdu published a pan-Islamist magazine in Paris with Alif Khani before returning to Egypt and entering the official bureaucracy. His was a career of downs and mostly ups. By the age of 50, he was appointed the Grand Mufti of Egypt, the highest religious office in the country and one of the most influential religious positions anywhere in the Muslim world. But Abdu is ultimately more important as a thinker, as someone who tried to reconcile and reform Islam for the modern world. His key work was the 1897 Risalat al-Tawheed, the treatise on divine unity, in which he used rationalist arguments to make the case for the existence of God, the necessity of revelation, the prophethood of Muhammad, the truth of the Quran, and the harmonious complementary relationship between reason and revelation. In the century or so since his death, Abdu has alternatively been described as a pioneer of Islamic modernism or as the founder of Salafism. By discussing his life and work, we'll see how this complex and fascinating figure evades easy labels, including my own as the Martin Luther of Islam. Joining me in this conversation is Oliver Shabrot, Professor of Islamic Studies at the University of Birmingham in the UK. He's the author of Islam and the Baha'i Faith, a comparative study of Muhammad Abdu and Abdul Baha Abbas, which came out with Routledge in 2008, as well as a forthcoming biography of Muhammad Abdu himself. Hello Oliver, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Today we're going to be talking about the great Egyptian Islamic reformer, Muhammad Abdu. Abdu was born in the Nile Delta, that's to say, in, in, in northern Egypt in 1849. Can you tell us something about the, the world that he was born into and perhaps something about his early life and, and influences through the first decades of his life? He was born into the, the rural part of, of northern Egypt, in the Nile Delta. Um, I mean, his, his father was um, a, a landowner, so, you know, was a farmer, so, you know, not extremely wealthy, but of, of modest wealth. Um, and as such, a quite sort of traditional rural Egyptian background um, mm. that sort of shaped um, his, his childhood, his youth, um, and so on. But um, his father was very interested in the education of his children, and he must have spotted in his child a particular talent and intellectual gift. So, um, you know, despite the rural background, he, he encouraged uh, um, Abdu to, to continue with his religious education. Obviously, at that time, sort of mid-19th century Egypt, the only formal education, um, sort of public education that was available was a religious education. 
um, and sort of moving on from the sort of preliminary steps, what we might call a kind of a, a primary school education with sort of the basics of maths and the, the literacy and, you know, Quranic recitation, where apparently Abdu excelled very much. Um, his father uh, supported his continuous education, so he went to the next largest city in, in northern Egypt, which is Tanta, um, and um, continued his education there um, in a seminary. The wider context um, in which Abdu was born was a time of, of uh, sort of the emergence of quite significant transformations in, in Egypt, in the Middle East more generally, in, in the wider Muslim world more generally. There was a, a recognition by the ruling elites um, of, of, of many you know, countries in, in the Middle East, in the Muslim world at that time, that um, they're sort of lagging behind technologically, scientifically. So um, rulers in the Muslim world, whether the, the Ottoman Sultan or the ruler of Egypt, um, they began to invest heavily in sort of upskilling, you know, the, 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 the sort of the intellectual elite, the educated elite of the countries, sending young men abroad to Europe, France in particular, to learn modern sciences, to learn modern technology, with the primary objective initially um, to modernize the armies, to, to establish a kind of a modern state bureaucracy. So that was sort of the broader context in which Abdul was born, sort of a society um, in, in change under the impression of modernization. Um, but obviously Abdul himself, in terms of his own background, had again a fairly traditional background and used sort of education. I mean, at that time, if you were a smart kid from rural Egypt, you know, a religious education would be your pathway to social mobility. You know, that's something you, you would pursue to you know, become a religious scholar, a religious expert, um, um, and um, you know, sort of religion would be um, the, the pathway uh, for, for educated people at that time. So he was born, as you say, in this period where, when Egypt's been very self-consciously been modernised. In 1798, half a century before his death, Napoleon has invaded Egypt, hasn't he? Yeah. This, this few years of, of occupation, something very important has been introduced, which is legacy, isn't it? Which is the printing press, isn't it? And this will be an important role in the spread of, of Abdu's ideas later. And it's the age of 17 when he moves to from, from Tanta, isn't it? Which is this old Sufi centre, apart from anything mm. else, isn't it? The famous yeah. shrine of Ahmad al-Badawi, the most famous of the... The, the Sufis, the, the great medieval mystics, or indeed yeah. saints, and saint fairs and cults and pilgrimages uh, of, of, of Egypt. And then he moves to Cairo at a, around the age of 17, isn't it, 1866. And he's going to the, the greatest seminary in many ways in, in the Arab world, the, in the Sunni world perhaps, yeah. uh, Al-Azhar, the great medieval ceremony. Uh, and at the age of 17, uh, he, he graduates from there, doesn't he, as, as, as an alim, as to say, one of the learned ones, yes. one of the, this group in Islamic societies called the ulama, the, yes. the learned ones who are experts in Quran, in hadith, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, and how to interpret them into Islamic law, which is, will be one of his key concerns. But while he's a student in Cairo, he meets uh, another very significant mm -hmm. 19th century figure, Jamaluddin al-Afghani. Now, his name 
Jamaluddin Al Afghani, the Afghan. In fact, he's from Iran, but mm. people take him to be an Afghan, yeah. as if he's an Afghan Sunni. Um, and Al Afghani has often been seen as the figure, as the founder of a movement in the 19th century that, that's often been called pan Islamism. Can you tell us something about Al Afghani, about Abdu, and about their relationship? I think the relationship is ex extremely crucial if we want to understand um, Abdu's contribution uh, and a sort of initiation to modern Islamic reform. Now, as you mentioned, um, and again, that would be quite traditional, quite standard. Abdu had an exposure to Sufism as part of his environment. He was you know, also initiated in a particular um, you know, Sufi mystical order. Um, and it seems, I mean, the way, you know, towards the end of his life, he talks about his early education experience, there's a huge sense of frustration and alienation. So he, he talks about outdated teaching methods where they, the students had to memorize um, texts without any intrinsic understanding of them, you know, quite authoritarian um, sort of um, educational style. And there's a strong sense of frustration around this. And the way Abdul portrays it, it was Sufism, it was the mystical tradition, it was the spirituality of Islam that kept him afloat at a time when he felt very frustrated and alienated by the traditional teaching method he encountered. And this, this, this Sufism we mentioned, I mean, sometimes that can be thought of as being uh, perhaps a sect or perhaps a minority group in Islam, but actually in the later 19th century, in, in, in Abdu's period, uh, it's been claimed that perhaps the majority of Egyptian Egyptian men and to some extent Egyptian women are initiated into these Sufi brotherhoods. It's a very normal thing, yeah. isn't it? Even though, of course, you know, a, perhaps a, a smaller minority will really study and the the Arabic philosophical texts of yeah. of Sufi mysticism, etc. But there's nothing particularly unusual about him in that way, is there? There is nothing. It would be part and parcel of of Muslim religious life uh, at at uh, that time that whichever social class, whatever background you have, you would have, have, you would have some affiliation, some involvement in, in, in Sufism. I think there are two things that are significant here, and this is sort of the, the, the trajectory where um, Abdul begins to move out, to move outside of the kind of the traditional context he grew up with. One is, it seems, again, from his own uh, sort of accounts of his childhood and youth, that he was um, exposed to what people have referred to as sort of reformist strands within Sufism. So Sufi movements um, that were in a sense quite traditional, that they did particular rituals, particular types of meditation and so on, but that emphasized in particular the devotion around the Prophet Muhammad and um, studying the accounts that exist around his life, the things he said, the things he did, you know, which you know the kind of traditions attributed uh, to to the Prophet Muhammad, which are called in Islam hadith. So there was a kind of reformist trend that, again, tried to go back to the the roots of Islam, to the sources of Islam, um, within the framework of um, of, of Sufism. So um, so there was a, a kind of a reformist impetus. Um, already there in his early exposure of Sufism. In, in terms of how he built a relationship with Afghani, Sufism became quite central because it seems that Afghani picked up on Abdul's Sufi interests and became his Sufi teacher, his mystical teacher, his mystical master. 
um, and as you mentioned, added to the kind of meditative practices to the particular rituals, the kind of philosophical traditions of Sufism, which had been lost to a certain extent in the Sunni world, but had been kept alive in Shia Islam. In Afghani, yes, as you mentioned, he wasn't really from Afghanistan, he was originally um, from Iran, he was a Shia Muslim, and and, and, and Shia Muslims can be Sufis or not. The, the Sufis are sometimes yes. Sunni, sometimes Shia. That's, That's true. And also within um, the Shia context and the traditional setting of Shia Islamic seminaries, philosophy and you know, the philosophical heritage of Islam, you know, figures like Avicenna, for example, they would play a central role, a much more central role than uh, within sort of traditional Sunni seminaries at that time. So what Afghani did, he sort of enriched uh, Abdu's exposure and involvement with Sufism with the kind of the philosophical traditions that have had been part of that, but were maybe not that prominent in Egypt at that time. More importantly, um, Afghani used his role as Abdu's mentor, teacher, to guide Abdu to political activism. And this is crucial because Al-Afghani's own uh, life journey, having grown up in Iran, he spent some time in Afghanistan, but he's also crucially been through British-controlled India, which That's has right, a, yes. a huge Muslim minority, perhaps a, a third of the population overall in that period. Um, and he's seen the effects of European colonialism yes. upon the, 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 the destruction of, of Muslim political power, the former Mughal Empire in India. And when he's moving to Egypt, uh, al-Afghani, he's seeing what will happen, he thinks, indeed yeah. what does happen in 1882 when the British take over Egypt. Yeah. So in a sense, al-Afghani, as you've already hinted, becomes a, a sort of a, a political mentor to Abdu in yeah. the sense of a wider world. He's travelled much more widely, he's yeah. seen a good deal of the world then, and he's seen a good deal of, of European power, European colonisation firsthand. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think there's still the, the intellectual contents, which is quite important. And again, introducing Abdu to intellectual traditions within Islam that he had not encountered before, and also introducing Abdu to European thought uh, via translations of you know quite influential um, books on history that were published in Europe and then translated into Arabic. But yes, Afghani is is an extremely important figure as the kind of the prototype of a Muslim anti-imperialist activist. <laughs> That um, was the direction he pushed up to as well. And this is where this whole idea of pan-Islamism emerged. The sense that um, Muslims are under threat from U European imperialism, particularly British imperialism, and they need to unite as a political entity to, to fight against the threat of imperialism. Um, and this is sort of where this idea of pan-Islamism was developed. That's helpful, isn't it? Because it's the Europeans, isn't it, who call it, call it this movement or the, the, this uh, ideology, one might say, pan-Islamism. And Islamic language is often called Ittihad Islam, isn't mm. it, in, in the Ottoman Turkish context yeah. in this period, or, or uh, Wahdat al-Islamiyah, yeah. the, the unity of Islam yes. or Islamic unity, which is to say, in a sense, the political unity, that, that Muslims should come together politically rather than be divided up yes. into different nations, which makes them more... Uh, 
more easily fall prey to, to European colonization in the 19th century. And yet, as we'll move on to see later, this idea of, of unity, of Tawheed, of divine unity, becomes an important theological uh, element, of, yeah. of, of, of course, of Islam generally, but particularly in, in Abdu's teachings. Um, but we'll move to that later. Let's move a little more through, through Abdu's life. So now he's in Cairo. He's graduated from Al-Azhar um, at, at the age of about 28, and he's appointed as a, as a history professor at the, the Darul Uloom, which is one of these modernizing institutions. Being, it's been founded in Egypt uh, just a few years earlier, in 1871. This is still Egypt that isn't yet under British power. And the Darul Uloom is, in a sense, a teacher training college. It's one of these places to create a modern Islamic education. And from there, Abdu is, in a sense, rising up through, through the, the bureaucratic ranks of of independent Egypt at this point, and he becomes the editor of Al-Waqi al-Misriya, isn't mm -hmm. it? The, the Egyptian Times, I guess we can call it, the Times like, yes. of Egypt, the, the state yes. uh, official newspaper. And then, with the British occupation of 1882, after a, a period of increasing British and more generally sort of European and French influence in Egypt, Abdu sent into exile, isn't he? He goes into yes. exile in in first of all in Lebanon and then to Europe, to France, yes. a little while in Britain. And he's there, he's away for around six years, isn't he? And yes. Can you tell us about, about how his direct exposure to Europe now, not translated books into Arabic that he's, he's been reading before, but how did his direct exposure to Europe shape the development of his mature ideas? hard to say. Um, I mean, he was two years in Europe, uh, primarily in Paris, and primarily publishing a journal together with Afghani, Al-Ubal Wuthka, which means the firmest bond, um, which again is an extremely influential journal, because this was sort of the, the vehicle, the instrument, where Afghani and Abdu um, articulated sort of their vision of Islam as an anti-imperialist um, ideology, and also developed this idea of Al-Wahda al-Islamiyya, you know, pan-Islamism. And this element of, of journalism and publishing, it's, it's really important to stress how new and novel this is, isn't it? Printing has been introduced to Egypt in about 1820, 1819, uh, and, and it's only really starting to develop more in Arabic printing in the second half of the 19th century. So we have this really important confluence that's coming together, these, what will be these reformist ideas and this new, new flourishing technology of printing, indeed even diasporic printing, let's say, in Paris, where this Arabic journal is, is, is published. No, absolutely. Um, and again, this is where sort of Abdu was not just a kind of a traditional religious scholar anymore. I mean, that was his upbringing. That would, would have been appeared, that would have appeared to be his sort of career trajectory when he sort of entered the seminary in Tantan al-Assa. But Afghani encouraged Abdu to publish in, 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 in the newspapers that emerged, were emerging I mean, the major Egyptian newspaper that was created in, um, I think, 1871, Al-Ahram, uh, which still is, is you know, one of the, the major national new newspapers of Egypt. Abdu was one of the first contributors. And he contributed to other sort of new uh, journals and, and, and newspapers that were created in this particular time, commenting on social, political affairs and issues, being obviously very um, in strong, very strong opposition towards the British occupation. And then in exile, yes, he... Uh, played a very central role in, in the pan-Islamist, anti-British, anti-imperialist journal um, that he published together with Afghani.
were in Paris, they, I mean, there was quite a fairly significant sort of exilic diaspora community from Egypt, from the Ottoman Empire, again, sort of people, again, like Abdu, who were kicked out of Egypt um, after the British occupation. So we don't really know how much interaction he had in Paris with other French intellectuals. So we know that he started learning French in order to read French books or books published in French in the original language rather than translation. What we know is that he began to establish links with British politicians in this time. Um, there was a particular prominent figure, Wilfred uh, uh, Blunt, who was uh, um, uh, a British politician who, uh, with a very strong anti-imperialist orientation, he was supportive of Irish home rule, so he opposed British imperialism in Ireland, he was supportive of you know, the sort of the nascent independence struggle um, in India, um, and he was also against the British occupation uh, of Egypt. So Blunt took Abdu from Paris to London, took him to the House of Commons. So he met a couple of other um, MPs, politicians, primarily those um, that um, opposed British imperialism. He met the, the Prime Minister at that time as well, Gladstone. So he had sort of a first-hand account of the kind of the the rationales behind European imperialism. And again, it's a bit speculative, but I think, you know, particularly his visit to Britain and just sort of his introduction to the sort of political establishment um, of Britain at that time must have shown to him that, you know, Europe or Britain, you know, despite their policies towards the Middle East, there are not monolithic blocks. You know, there are debates in Parliament, in the newspaper, in the public arena around certain policies such as imperialism and there are influential and significant figures of power opposing imperialism or opposing a particular impl implementation of imperialism. So it must have certainly created an awareness of him or in him that um, there is no British policy towards the Muslim world. There are a variety of actors. It also, I mean, again, he was in the House of Commons, he was in, in, in Westminster, it must also create an awareness of sort of how representative democracy uh, works and so on, and how sort of public debates are sort of articulated. And um, again, we don't have sort of firm evidence of this, but I mean, we know obviously that later on, after six years in exile, he returned back to Egypt and he actually tolerated, if not supported, British colonial rule over Egypt and European colonialism more generally as something useful to modernize societies, to modernize uh, Muslim societies, having a sense that the traditionalists in these societies, whether they're the traditional religious scholars or the traditional ruling elites, they don't have the skills, they're not capable, they don't have the, the will to modernize these societies. So in that sense, colonialism can uh, be useful. So there was a complete U-turn in terms of Abdu's um, political um, attitudes from somebody who was initially um, socialized and educated by Al-Afghani as a staunch opponent of European and particular British imperialism to somebody who became pragmatic around this and who could see the benefits of this in, in terms of um, um, his, his, his own societies.
I think that's a helpful world, isn't it? That, that, that he's a pragmatist because he's, he's, he's got a more sophisticated sense of the realities of European politics at this point, isn't he? And he's seeing that, that the Europeans, the British themselves, might be uh, a useful tool towards his own aims as an Egyptian patriot, an Egyptian nationalist even, uh, in, in this period of the emergence of Egyptian nationalism, and someone who's really dedicated still nonetheless to the, the moral and indeed the religious uplift mm. of the Egyptian people, indeed of Muslims more generally, because he's remaining nonetheless a, a figure, a member of the, the ulama, the, the learned, mm. the closest thing that Islam has to a clergy in a sense. Yeah. Um, albeit also as a, as a public figure, as we've seen, a, a sort of a, a public alim, a public mm. uh, member of, of the clergy. And by the time he returns to, to Egypt in, in 1888, then he's in his late 30s by this point, it's been quite a, a journey he's made through life, isn't it, from rural Tanta and... and and as you've, you've mentioned, Oliver, he's, he embarks then upon a, a legal career under the, 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 the growing British administration within Egypt. And ultimately, by 1899, by the age of 50, he's appointed the Grand Mufti of Egypt, mm. which is the highest legal position, or at least the highest Islamic legal yeah. position within, within the land. And it's during that time, through the 1890s, that he publishes his most famous theological work, in 1897, his Risalat al-Tawheed, the treatise on divine unity. Could you tell us about Abdu's theology now and his mature years as it's laid out in his treatise on divine unity? I mean, there are certain continuities uh, from his earlier activism. Again, his attitude towards colonialism has changed, uh, um, but the continuity is there is, is the urgency of reform. He was particularly concerned, again, from his early days onwards, you know, when he was a student at Al-Azhar and sort of encountered and was frustrated by the traditional teaching methods, that he, he saw a kind of um, a bifurcation, a split emerging in Muslim societies. That on the one hand, you have very traditional education institutions, that train traditional Muslim scholars who don't engage with modern ideas. And then you had institutions like the Dalolu, you mentioned, um, sort of education reforms that sort of followed a Western model of sending young uh, men, bright young men to Europe to study sort of Western sciences. So you had the emergence of a Western-oriented secular elite in Muslim societies at the same time. And he was very concerned around this and felt, well, there needs to be some sort of combination um, of, the, of the two. And what he tried to create, in a sense, was an understanding of Islam that is sort of faithful to its roots, to its sources, that goes back to the primary roots of Islam. Which would be the, the scripture, presumably the Quran. Yeah, the, and the Quran the, and uh, uh, the traditions of the Prophet, but at the same time is at ease with the modern world, that is embraces a rational outlook on the world that embraces a scientific outlook uh, to the world. I think it's important to, to stress, isn't it, how important that when we say modern or, as you said, a scientific outlook, how revolutionary that was in the 19th century and how much the, the results of the, the practical results of the scientific revolution by way of the Industrial Revolution, through the spread of railroads in Egypt, of steamer ports, of the novelties of, of printed text mm. as distinct from, from manuscripts, and indeed the, the actual military power that also comes with the scientific revolution for Europe. So there's this real sense in many Muslim societies that what's distinguishing Europe is its control of 
this new body of knowledge called science that works. And an attempt by various Egyptian intellectuals, including religious intellectuals like Abdu, to, on the one hand, understand the, the intellectual basis of this scientific knowledge, rationalism, as you said, but also to try to harmonize it with, with Islam so that Islam doesn't get, doesn't get fallen by the wayside of, of Egypt's modernization. Yes, and I think, again, if you look at um, his, his book, Risalat al-Tawhid, uh, Treatise on, on Divine Unity, if you look at the Quran commentary initiated, Tafsir al-Manar, I mean, he didn't really complete it, he sort of managed to sort of cover sort of the, the, the first two chapters um, of, of, of the Quran and you know, some bits and pieces here and there. What he tries to do is to sort of rediscover the, the rational roots of Islam and the sort of the rationalistic traditions um, within Islamic intellectual history. So particular sort of Islamic philosophy figures like um, Avicenna, for example, who was you know, extensively quoted. And still um, taught in, in Oxford or Europe till yes. the 17th century or something, and a, yeah, a major rationalist philosopher of the Middle Ages. Uh, so again, using figures like them to, to show that there is a central place of reason, of rationality, within Islamic thought. It's not something that we are just adopting as Muslim from outside. It's inherent within our own tradition. There is obviously also a bit of apologetics going on. Again, we have to bear in mind that Abdu, as many other Muslim thinkers and activists at the time, encountered Christian missionaries who obviously presented a discourse of Christian superiority and connected that with the scientific, political and economic power of, of Europe, um, um, so you know, Christianity came uh, as part and parcel of colonialism. So there was also a need by Muslim figures like that to, to respond to the presentation of by Christian missionaries of Islam as backwards, outdated uh, religion. And the way I'm doing, many other figures did at that time, is to sort of put forward the argument that Islam is not just at ease and in harmony with science and, and modern rationality, almost saying we invented it, we had it first. Christianity is a much more irrational religion than Islam is. You know, Islam is much more rational. And again, this was a discourse primarily directed to sort of his own crowd, his own people, to you know, middle, upper class, educated Muslims who wanted to live in the modern world, and, and he was concerned that you know, we would lose them, they would embrace either another religion, Christianity, or become secular. So all his writings, all his discourses were, were aiming to prove that Islam doesn't contradict rationality, doesn't contradict science, but is actually more at ease with it, more in harmony with it, than any other religion. <laughs> In addition to this attempt to, to find a, a harmony or balance between reason and revelation, one might say, a classic theological issue in, in, in many different religious traditions, but as you said, particularly in, in the, the context of 19th century Egypt, his, his formal training as a, an, an Islamic lawyer, so to speak, and his position as ultimately of mufti, of, of grand Islamic judge, uh, uh, supreme judge, one might say, supreme Islamic judge, Mufti of Egypt. He also has a, a, a serious interest that he writes about in, in, in his work in Risalat al-Tawhid and elsewhere on the reform of Islamic law, and particularly this idea of, 
of, of ijtihad, mm. of the use of, of, of reasoned interpretation um, in, in actually deciding what is Islamic law, what is Sharia, and indeed what is not. Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, it, as, as part of, of the, the traditional training um, you would have received in Islamic law at that time is that you're trained in a particular school of Islamic law and there would be the expectation that you sort of follow the precedents that have been put forward by previous generations of, of legal scholars within your particular school. And again, he felt in, in, the, 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 in, the, in the face of the challenge we are facing now um, and you know, the, the, the need to modernize Islam, this blind adherence to tradition doesn't work. You know, we need to go back to the original sources, to the Quran, to the traditions of the Prophet, and give these sources a, a fresh new interpretation, you know, make them relevant um, to the, the needs and concerns of the contemporary world. And we can ignore the traditional interpretations if they're not fit for purpose. Again, he would also include traditional interpretations, but again, he would be very liberal and cross um, boundaries between different schools of thought, between different legal schools, if he felt another legal school would have a better solution to a particular legal problem. But the whole emphasis is that the primary reference point for Islam are the Quran and the teachings and traditions of the Prophet. And what we need is a new ijtihad, a new interpretation, a fresh interpretation, a direct interpretation of these sources. It's important to, to stress, isn't it, how not, not entirely novel, there have been other reformers before, but, but there's a great deal of, 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 in a sense, a counterweight, the counterweight of tradition, perhaps, in many ways, that, that Abdu is, is standing up against and really opposing. He, he's in a very strong position, isn't he, as Grand Mufti of Egypt, he's in a very, very consolidated legal and, and, and formal public position. And perhaps that, that helps him. In, in his ability to really criticise what is actually normal Islam for, for most Egyptians, and particularly in long-standing ways of interpreting Sharia, that there's a term, isn't it, taqlid, the idea of being bound by, in a sense, by a former uh, legal precedent. And he's saying these legal pre precedents, these older rulings, sometimes they might work. He's not entirely rejecting them all without reason, but that's the key point, isn't it, as part of his, his emphasis on reason, that, that we should go back to first principles, Muslims should go back to first principles, and use reasoned interpretation of the Quran and the Hadith to say whether something's legal or not. And if that means rejecting a thousand years of, of thought about Sharia, or a thousand years of ordinary Muslim practice in Egypt or elsewhere, then so be it, that can be rejected. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the idea of, you're absolutely right, the idea of ijtihad, of sort of going back to the sources, has always been part of Islamic discourse. He wasn't the one who introduced this. This, I mean, in all, you know, the Middle Ages, you know, there are always scholars who say, okay, let's reject the tradition and do ijtihad. Uh, I think, yes, the unique situation is on the one hand, sort of the, the modern world and modern ideas and how to adapt Islam to these challenges. But I think what is also quite interesting about Abdu is the means he used to achieve this. He was what we might call today a public intellectual. So his books that he wrote, you know, we, we talked about the Risalat al-Tawhid, this sort of important theological word, work. Um, it was not written for the specialists, but this was written for 
educated, the educated public, you know, everybody who has a certain level of education could, could read this and could understand this. Um, his Quran commentary, which, you know, the, which were published uh, later on as uh, the Tafsir al-Mana, were based on lectures he gave at Al-Azhar, you know, the institution where he began his studies in Cairo as a young man, uh, public lectures he gave um, on aspects of the Quran. Um, again, not just for the specialists, not just for students, but everybody could attend and then you know, they were later published. So he, he felt the need that for a religious scholar, and again, as a religious scholar, he felt you know, uh, you know, he's sort of representing Islam, to, to be relevant to sort of a new class of, of middle upper class, Western educated Egyptians and Muslims more generally, to, to remain relevant, you need to use printed media, you need to use a language that is understandable um, um, for an educated group of people and again make Islam relevant to, to their needs. This is really use, useful, isn't it? This idea of the of the, of the printing press, of him being a, a public figure in, a, in an emerging public sphere that helps us explain his influence in his own time and afterwards. Egypt, or particularly Cairo, is emerging at this time as it remains today pretty much as the, the publishing and media centre of the, the Arab Middle East. His work will also be translated into other languages during his lifetime, not least into, into Tatar for the the Russian, the large Russian minority of the Russian Empire. So his ideas start to spread through these various means, and not least because so many students from throughout the Islamic world, including by around 1900, including even students, Muslims from as far as China, will be coming to study in Egypt and at Al-Azhar. So for these various reasons, his ideas start to spread a great deal in Egypt and certainly beyond Egypt during and, uh, and subsequent to his death in 1905, still relatively young in his mid-50s, but really at the, at the peak of his influence then, at the peak of his career. Now, he has a continued legacy after his death, isn't he, in the century or so since he died in 1905. To what extent, though, does Muhammad Abdu's legacy over the centuries since his death allow us to think of him as being the Martin Luther of Islam? Well, I mean, certainly in terms of his his lasting impact, influence, and significance. Obviously, he didn't create his own church, um, you know, because the church structure doesn't exist in Islam. There is not a particular denomination or movement that would sort of subscribe to his um, theo theological ideas, as it would be the case in Protestantism. Not one, but perhaps many movements. That but again, he, he's he's been extremely influential and. Um, you know, quite a broad spectrum of, um, of, of different movements and thinkers refer to him as, as their role model. That relates a little bit to the sort of the inherent tensions in his intellectual legacy, because on the one hand, he emphasized the return to the foundations of Islam and sort of reorienting um, Islamic discourses, Islamic practices towards the foundations of Islam. And again, so, these yes. foundations being the Quran and the body of traditions, the Hadith, what Muhammad didn't say, what some of the first generation Muslims did have said, the so-called Salaf, the, the pious ancestors. Absolutely. So, you know, movements that you know, we would very often sort of qualify as fundamentalist movements within modern contemporary Islam 
would also trace their origins to that particular orientation uh, of Abdu, you know, going back to the roots, going back to the sources, to the Quran, to the Hadith, to Islam as it was practiced at the time of Muhammad and the immediate generations following him. But also at the same time, he believed in, in science, in rationality. He wanted to um, create an understanding of Islam that embraces modern ideas. So another strand of his students and followers would embrace a very liberal, if not secular, understanding of Islam um, that completely appropriates sort of modern ideas. So again, from fundamentalist movements and, and, and interpretations of Islam to very liberal movements and interpretations of Islam, um, we see all of them um, you know, referring to Abdu um, as, as their predecessor. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's part of the, the tension that exists within his thought, which he never quite resolved, because I think he just sort of assumed that the, the true Islam that we will discover when we do a new ijtihad, when we go back to the sources, will be in harmony with modern rationality, with a scientific worldview. Um, I mean, there is sort of a very interesting response he gave to a question, again, by probably an Egyptian, um, who asked him, well, you know, the whole biblical story, and it's obviously also repeated in the Quran, of, you know, the, uh, the flood of, of Noah and Noah's ark, I mean, according to modern science and history, how tenable is it? Um, and again, he responds saying, yes, it might not happen. We don't really have evidence for this, that it happened. We don't have sort of historical evidence that the deluge ever happened, that Noah's Ark existed. But there was a sort of sense that eventually history and science will prove that this somehow happened. So there was an understanding, yes, we might not have the evidence now. And we need to accept, from again, from a historical, critical, from a scientific perspective, that we don't have the evidence. But there was a sense of optimism that maybe with time we'll get the evidence. So again, the notion, yeah, that's what, what Islam believes. I mean, we might not always have sort of independent, objective, scientific confirmation of certain things, but there was a sort of optimism. We might get it at some point. The sense of then, of cru crucial to his thought, you know, the sense of the harmony of, of, of reason and revelation yes. of, of, yeah. of science and religion. <laughs>
know, the idea of a political unity of Islam, the idea of the Ummah, the Islamic community that forms a political unity and needs to work together to fight against you know, Western imperialism, Western colonialism. Um, it needs to unite politically, which again is an idea we find in you know, movements up today that you know, we would characterize as radical or fundamentalist. And you know, with Afghani, he was one of the first figures in, in, in the 19th century who talked about Islam in this particular way. Um, although you know, later on he um, dissociated himself from this particular form of understanding of Islam and activism. But nevertheless, the, the journal he published with Afghani, in Abdu, uh, with, with Afghani in Paris was quite influential in that sense. I think the other important contribution is making Islamic discourses accessible to lay Muslims by, on the one hand, being this kind of public figure, using print media, newspapers, you know, other forms, public lectures, having an accessible writing style to, to make Islamic discourse more accessible, and in turn to also allow lay Muslims, lay intellectuals without a formal religious training, journalists, other scholars to contribute to what Islam means. I mean, up to the time of Abdu, Islamic discourse, religious discourse, defining what Islam is, that was the prerogative of the religious scholars, and he opened the pathway for all sorts of Muslims engaging in, in interpretations and the meanings of Islam. A key figure then, if not in Martin Luther, but certainly a figure that opened the gates of Ijtihad, as is often said in his own time, to an ongoing reformation that is perhaps still taking place today throughout the Islamic world. Professor Oliver Shabrot, thank you very much for speaking to us today in Akbar's Chamber. Dark, 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 dark,